you and I were going over this document and we each attacked it from a different angle. I was looking at the conditions of use document and you were looking at something else. Our listeners listen with care may say, these guys can't even get on the same page as to what the appropriate Amazon terms of service are necessarily that would apply to the average bear. But I would submit to you that in of itself is demonstrative of the larger issue of just how complex and how utterly unconscionable and frankly idiotic these various agreements are. I like to think of myself as at least an average lawyer in looking at a document entitled AWS Service Terms that was last updated on May 3rd, 2023, which as I read it, is intended to apply to both, among other things, Amazon resellers, as well as what I will call purchasers, like you and I as consumer purchasers. It is a document that I had my assistant print out that's got to be at least 50 pages in length. Well, you're lucky. You're lucky it's only 50 pages. It's not numbered. I mean, it's not numbered. And of course, that's by design. I have to say, though, Joel, this is the reason you and I started this show. We've been playing with other ones for the last six episodes, but this one goes to the heart of what the major complaint is. And I think you're absolutely right. When I wanted to take a look at the Amazon Terms of Service, I was interested and admittedly naive in thinking about what it would entail. When someone says Amazon to me, they are the world's largest online retailer. And I foolishly think that's the entirety of the scope of their services. But back to this agreement, which I'm referencing, which contains, by the way, no more than 96 subsections. Okay, 96 subsections. I forgot that the breadth of Amazon's touch these days is far broader than just online. It's infinite. And what makes this, I think, so silly is that there are parts of this agreement and offshoots, when I dug in a little bit to the hyperlinks, that I don't even understand what they're talking about. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. You're kidding me. Get out of here. No, I'm not kidding you. That's really in your EULA, and that's what we're about to investigate. This is Mark Miller, and I'm not a lawyer. But I am curious as to what I've committed to when I press the accept button on the app I just downloaded. Even though I'm not a lawyer, hey, my friend Joel is. Hey, I'm a lawyer. I find the issues we talk about on this podcast to be interesting. But under no means am I your lawyer. At least not yet. Joel and I are going to explore popular app and site EULAs. We want to determine the legal obligations you're agreeing to when you set up an account on, say, YouTube or TikTok or one of the new chat engines. It's kind of geeky, I know, but we're going to have some fun with it. So stay with us. I think our focus today, because of where we go with the show, should be on the consumer end of it. I'm not worried about AWS services, which is an 800-pound gorilla in all of this. We're talking about the consumer thing. That's where we should focus on it. And not surprisingly, it's very onerous. So much so that in the last half hour before we met up for our call, 
I took a few minutes and I wanted to do some searching and find out to what extent has it been the subject of litigation. And not surprisingly, it has. And not surprisingly, those litigations which have raised the issue of the unconscionability of the terms of service are, as we've discussed on other shows as well, primarily directed towards the arbitration provision. That is, to what extent are the claims before the court necessarily the subject of a mandatory arbitration provision? I don't profess to have surveyed the landscape in its entirety, but I'll submit to you that in the half dozen of cases that I just quickly poked around on, I'd say maybe 80% of them find in favor of Amazon. There was one case that I saw in which a New York court appeared to be saying that the terms and conditions, although I want to make clear Amazon was a defendant, the name defendant, and to whom I believe the court was directing the comment was to Grubhub, but did find that Grubhub's terms of conditions was found to be unconscionable under New York law. So I thought that was maybe a sliver of hope for those of us out there hoping to hold these big corporations accountable in a court of law. One of the things that I've come up with here, and I think it will be useful, is I'm going to spend the next week and I'm actually going to do a flowchart of the hierarchy of the documents that you're supposed to read in order to participate in the Amazon playground, if you want to call it that. As I was doing it and just going down the rabbit hole, I just stopped at one that was nothing but a page of links <laughs> that sent you off to another branch of the tree. I think it's going to be very worthwhile because it's going to let people visualize what this thing is that they're professing to say, yeah, that's okay with me. I think that's a great idea. I have increasingly want to get my arms around and tackle this as a legal proposition. I will say of all the agreements that we've looked at, and we've got to be up to what, at least a half dozen, if not more now, this is by far, I think, the most egregious, just given the length, the complexity. On the document that I was looking at, it's so complicated, but on its face, that there are provisions in here that does make it, as far as I'm concerned, incomprehensible to the average user. I want to make sure that I'm looking at this properly. I think that you could make a case, you personally, in a court of law, that you could make a case with this specifically, that there is no expectation that the average consumer will read this. Let's get into specifics from sure. the consumer's part. I want to just paraphrase this, but I do have it in writing. The thing that you do when you leave a review or participate in the public forum on Amazon, it says that you grant Amazon a non-exclusive royalty-free blah, 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 <laughs> that they can reproduce, modify, adapt, publish, perform, and translate and create derivative works from those reviews that you've left, and they can distribute it and display that content throughout the world in any medium that they want and use your name that you submitted in connection with it. So you can modify content and you can put words in my mouth and say anything that you want and you go put my name on it. When wow. you read that, Joel, it, on the face of it, it's just not right. 
and I say this every show, it's just not right. You can't take my words, transform them into something completely different, and then put my name on it. But what you don't like about that, and this is a philosophical position, is you don't like the concept that you as a consumer can contract away your rights. You and others bristle at that. But yet as a practical matter, we do it all the time. When we walk into a movie theater, we are contracting, now it's a social contract, but we are contracting that we're not going to, to cry fire when in fact there's no fire. Oh, you're way off base. You're way off base. I don't think I am. Yeah, this has nothing to do with freedom of speech. No, no, it doesn't. And that's not the analogy I'm trying to make. My point is only that there is nothing wrong with contracting away rights that you otherwise have. If you know you're contracting them away, and our point is nobody's reading this. I agree with you, except, and I just read this less than a half hour ago, courts, some courts at least, are holding, yes, we understand you're not on actual notice, but you're on inquiry notice, which is to the effect of when you click purchase, there's enough in there that says by making this purchase, you also agree to our terms of service. Click here for the full vomiting of our terms and service. I agree with you. And I'm not suggesting that there isn't something afoul about what's going on here. But I do disagree with the idea that we can't as individuals contract away rights that we would otherwise have. Yeah, I'm not arguing that point. You're right. That's everywhere. But contracting this away with the punch of a button with no expectation that anybody's going to read this stuff before they punch the button. I'm not a government fanatic that I want government's nose in anything or everything, I should say. But there's something egregiously wrong here. And this is why a lawsuit is rather interesting to me, because I would love to get my hands on the internal discovery within the legal department that goes something like this. Let's make our agreements as complicated as possible so that not only can no one easily follow the flowchart you're talking about, such that no reasonable individual could properly understand the intersection of all of the agreements and really at the end of the day had a full appreciation of what they were contracting away, even if they had read all 17 sub-agreements that form part of the overall terms and service. But I'm looking at the section called risk of loss. The risk of loss summarizes the risk of loss and title for such items passed to you, the consumer, upon our delivery, Amazon's delivery, to the carrier. My point is, I don't know anything about that carrier. I don't know anything about this handoff at all. How can it be my responsibility when I have nothing to do with it? So let me just pick this apart. It is interesting. All purchases of physical items from Amazon are made pursuant to a shipment agreement. This means that the risk of loss and title for such items pass to you upon our delivery to the carrier. But isn't Amazon's carrier its own carrier? In the big metropolitan areas, you and I see them all day long because they're just wheeling carts up and down the street in New York. But for the outlying areas, no. I guess this makes sense. Amazon will third-party contract DHL or whatever to deliver to some farm in Iowa. 
Well, the essence of this, though, to me says, once we hand it off, it's your problem. If it gets lost, it's your problem. If there's some kind of compensation that needs to be made to the carrier, it's your problem. That's what it seems to say. What's interesting about that is, is when you consider third parties like DHL, for example, it doesn't say that the liability is transferred to their subcontractor. Amazon transfers it to DHL. Hey, my kid didn't get his baseball glove. I want to take it up with DHL in the hope that they refund me or whatever. But you're right, as is. You're absolutely right. Here's another one that I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into. There's basic cover your ass statements all over this thing. But the big one here for product descriptions is fascinating. Amazon does not warrant that product descriptions or other content of any Amazon service is accurate, complete, reliable, current, or error-free. <laughs> That's under the product description statement. Yeah. It goes outside the bounds of the consumer we're talking about because it says any Amazon service. So does that mean that AWS description, the Amazon web services which they sell, don't yeah. have to be accurate, complete, reliable? Yeah, Amazon service is defined elsewhere. I looked at it. I don't remember what it is. But yeah, I think that's right. You can appreciate, I think, what the driver was for this statement. If someone is offering a backpack, if what you get is a fishing lure, they're saying it's not my problem. But I think we can all use common sense to say, hey, I agree with that. But that's not what they say here. That's not what they say. And certainly Amazon service, I assume covers more than just the e-commerce services we're talking about. If a product offered by Amazon itself, but then it goes on, is not as described, your sole remedy is to return it in an unused condition. So where there's a reseller, they're saying we have nothing to do with it. Where you're buying from us directly, your sole remedy is to return it to us unused. But it does beg the question, Amazon services, how broad is that? And does that include some of the other ancillary services that I was looking at in the other main agreement? It goes back to what you said at the beginning. A lot of this is just incomprehensible. It's not even consistent within itself. And that's the problem with something where you have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pages that's defining all this stuff. There's a lot of other stuff going on there too, of course, which is that you have multiple lawyers at different points in time working on this. And even though the design, I'm sure, is harmony in terms of the language used, that's really tough to do when you're dealing with such a nebulous series of documents. The next section that I have outlined here is app permissions. One of the things that they do is they say to learn more about these permissions, Click here. And when you click here, it sends you to a page called security and privacy that has nothing to do with mobile devices whatsoever. It's got 19 additional links and three of those links pointing down the tree to additional more links. You had some good phrase, I think, some weeks ago. It was analogous to, to, to a fractal. Fractal documentation. The final thing that I have that I would want your opinion on here is when I saw the how to serve a subpoena or other legal process, and I looked at it and said, so Amazon's going to define how I can serve a subpoena to them? 
They all do. They all do. Because what they want to do is they have various legal departments, but they'll have one recipient, essentially a glorified post office, from which they want to funnel all of their subpoenas. Usually what happens is in a place like Amazon, subpoena from ABC Corp gets issued a ticket. Someone at some point, I'm sure, is going to look at that. They receive it. It's ticketed. They're going to figure out what it is want, right? They want business records in connection with an alleged trademark infringement. That'll be delivered to some subunit who will have a series of internal corporate lawyers or paralegals that will be responsible for that sort of niche-oriented production. That's not unusual. And certainly when in years gone by, I have, I think every sort of young lawyer goes through this. This happens in banks too, when you're seeking financial records. You lose some time having subpoenaed the wrong corporate office. I don't know what people were doing for purposes of subpoenaing bank records in the era before the internet, but that's not uncommon. I mean, the only thing that jumped out at me too was, and this actually looks at it from the other angle, is within the mother agreement, there's this whole thing about taxes and appropriate tax reporting and withholding. That has to, at a minimum, apply to the Amazon reseller. From the standpoint of privacy, it reads, for each seller, we will collect the necessary data and tax forms to enable compliance with applicable tax laws. For example, for U.S.-based sellers, we will collect and retain seller name and address and may collect the tax identification number and other data as needed to comply with Form 1099-K reporting requirements. The interesting thing for me, Joel, is when you talk about that, when I buy something on Amazon, Amazon knows I'm in New York City, and they will put the New York City tax on top of that payment. Then the payment has to be processed through Amazon. I'm filling out the Amazon payment form. This is interesting. For each buyer, so this would apply to you and us. It says, we will collect and retain the buyer's name and address. Now, again, why are they doing that? You just hit the nail on the head because in New York City, I'm paying, for example, a New York City tax. That begs the question then, why is the buyer's information kept? The buyer's information is kept so that both Amazon and the Amazon reseller can appropriately report their revenues, period. That's why. Okay. All right. All right. Do I call it a day on that one? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I want to remind people that you're a lawyer, but you are not their lawyer. <laughs> At least not yet. That's our investigation for today. If you've got questions or comments, go to the show page what's in my you'll also find links and resources there that will put you in touch with joel you're kidding me that's in my eula is a weekly production of the sourced network where you'll find our growing list of podcasts including it's 505 the daily Cybersecurity and open source news real technologists with host trace bannon and a bomb with host DJ Schleen. Special thanks today to Katie, that's with a D, Katie, that's with a T, Edwin and Tracy for the awesome voiceover talent. Music today is provided by Hashout, 
at Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. A final word from Joel. Hey, I'm a lawyer. I find the issues we talk about on this podcast to be interesting. But under no means am I your lawyer. At least not yet. If you're interested in having me become your lawyer or otherwise want to talk about some of these issues, you can. You can reach me at my email, which is available in the transcript of this podcast.